Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Imagine if you worked with a team for several years on creating a thing, and then that thing couldn't even be tested properly until almost a year after it was completed. And now, imagine that you can't even see your creation work in real time because it's on another freaking planet. Well, that's exactly the experience of my guest, Taryn Bailey, a mechanical engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California. Taryn is a part of the team that built Ingenuity, the helicopter that proves that controlled flight on another planet is possible. Imagine, you know, years down the road when you have basically an iPhone on another planet, and we're talking about human, like, manned missions to, to Mars. So, I mean, being able to have drone helicopters with humans on Mars and what that means is just, you know, beyond. Okay, I admit it, I'm a space nerd. As a kid, I joined the NASA Junior Space Program. Back then, I meticulously clipped and saved every newspaper story about the Gemini program, and I watched every second of Apollo. Do you realize that it only took nine months from the launch of Apollo 7 in October 68 to the moon landing in July 1969? That's a crewed mission every two months to achieve what many thought was an impossible dream. To put things in proper perspective, it took seven months to put the Perseverance rover on Mars. Ingenuity hitched a ride on the belly of the rover, so when the team finally had their helicopter on the ground and ready for its first flight, they were definitely on pins and needles waiting for the data to tell them whether these seven years and $85 million of development had paid off. Yeah, it is. It's very stressful. I would say one of the most stressful parts of this is at the very beginning when um, our downlink lead announces that we're beginning to receive data products. Yeah. Because, you know, depending on what comes down, sometimes it might not, you might not get the full set or there are a lot of different scenarios that can happen, but everyone's just waiting. They can see the data coming down, but we can't look at it yet. So it's just like, okay, we're just going to keep waiting here. <laughs> uh, and then there are some indicators that once we receive the data product, uh, that certain things happened or certain things might not have happened. So um, containing that excitement for the the moment that the pictures and the plots get unveiled is also another like tensious <laughs> moment. So do do you get did you get the data that it worked before you saw the images? Um, so the team internally, there were indicators that the flight was executed or that things were looking good. You know, it was a positive outcome, yeah. but. Uh, we wanted to wait for full confirmation before celebrating properly. Uh, but yeah, for the rest of the team, there were certain indications that we saw in the data before it was like official that we jumped out of our seats that, oh my gosh, the <laughs> Well, I, I got to tell you that, uh, you know, sitting, I'm, I'm just outside of Toronto and, and sitting here and, and refreshing my iPad. And at first I only saw, um, I guess I saw a, a picture of it in the air but it wasn't until i saw the video that i was like oh my god this is happening on another planet this is unbelievable <laughs> yeah and the video was a surprise uh we were seeing pictures all the way around maybe just like stills of it on the ground on the air and then on the ground again yeah but it was like a double take like, is that moving so it was amazing. Well, <laughs> Thank you, Perseverance. Well, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. So I, I'm, I'm curious, was the idea of having a helicopter or a drone um, a part of the Perseverance mission plan all along? Um, it was a later add-in. 
So um, perseverance was the primary mission. And uh, the idea of the helicopter kind of came in a little bit later. And we had to achieve a lot of different milestones to show that we could, um, you know, be a part of the M2020 mission. So uh, the, the concept of the helicopter was something that Perseverance was kind of keeping in mind, but it wasn't, um, you know, fully validated or, or confirmed until we were able to, you know, hit our milestones. What kind of milestones are you talking about? Um, so, you know, we had to show a lot of things throughout our testing. So we have a series of tests to show that we can, you know, build something that can fly. So we have two engineering models <laughs> that uh, answer that question. Um, we also had to stay within a mass envelope and uh, a size envelope. And so being able to build something that would work and also maintain those requirements. And then our series of testing, we had to that um, you know that we can control it and so all of that testing went into answering those questions and so with every you know success that we've had along the way it was more validation that yeah we can make this work so i was curious do you need to um figure out what the purpose of having the helicopter is prior to digging into what the physics are of actually making it work like do you have do you, do you have to put together a proposal say we want to have we want to have this a part of the mission because of these reasons? Uh, yes. So with any project that gets picked up by NASA, there's a proposal process, and um, you know the help considered a tech demo or technology demonstration. So really the the, the science behind it, because you know whenever you put together these proposals, typically there's an instrument or there's a purpose that you're trying to execute collect some sort of scientific data. Um, for the helicopter, it was a little bit different. It was really just proving a concept of flying on a different planet. And so that proposal, that was the essence of that proposal, was flying on another planet with a controlled vehicle and, um, and then being able to execute that afterwards. Right. So, so what kind of variables do you need to consider when you design something like Ingenuity? Uh, so, yeah, we have to miss the, the atmosphere. That's paramount. So um, Mars' atmospheric density is very different than Earth. And that was really a big consideration, big challenge in, in being able to generate lift. So, um, you know, our rotor system had to be designed in a very customized way in order to do that. And that was a big problem that we had to overcome. And then, once again, the mass, mass played into every design element of this vehicle. So, yeah, making things multifunctional as part of the design so that we can reduce mass was another really big consideration. And then um, the other thing was the, the temperature. So temperature is significantly different, a lot colder on Mars. And um, being able to have something that's an autonomous vehicle that's also like self-sustaining in a way that it can survive on its own, it was a tremendous challenge considering all of the other parameters on top of that. So. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so talking about mass, I, I figure that there's there are bare bones that this thing needs to have. So, is that where it sort of starts with how much is this? You know, how much is the or what is the minimum amount of weight this thing needs to be? <laughs> uh, so we had to stay within a two kilogram mass allocation. That was our mass allocation. So we came in at one point eight, which was really great. And yeah, so the bare bones of it, we had to, you know, you have your solar panel because you need to be able to generate energy and, you know, recharge your batteries. So we have batteries and then you need your rotor system because you have to fly. 
And then you just need your base electronics in order to operate the vehicle. So that's essentially what the helicopter is with the addition of a couple of cameras so that we can snap photos and show that we flew and, you know, feel good about, <laughs> feel good about, uh, you know, us flying. Um, but other than that, like that, it is a completely stripped down uh, aerial vehicle in the most, you know, direct sense. You know, absolutely. So how, so how do you go about testing a vehicle on Earth, given the, the atmosphere and the gravitational differences with Mars? We uh, have, so the testing is very unique to the helicopter. Um, we do a lot of, it's funny because we do definitely pull from, obviously, other stuff we've done um, in previous projects. So for the helicopter, we use thermal vacuum chambers. And for us, uh, in order to fly in the thermal vacuum chamber, it has to be pretty big. So we were in a 25-foot diameter uh, thermal vacuum chamber, and essentially we it allows us to control temperature and pressure, so we can mimic uh, the Mars atmospheric density. And then we also have our gravity offload system that was custom developed, and that compensates for the difference in gravity between Earth and Mars. So that's what we used in our free flight. We do have a lot of of other testing that we use fixturing for uh, before we get to the free flight but uh, that's that's pretty much the essence of our of how we set up our testing can you explain kind of in layman's terms how the gravity the gravitational thing works yeah absolutely so um the gravity offload system is essentially like a tensioning mechanism uh so gravity um, on mars is about a third of earth and so, uh, you know, when in some of our testing, it looks like the helicopter may be tethered, but um, there is a slight string that attaches to the top of the helicopter and then goes to the top of the chamber. And at the top of the chamber is where that gravity offload system is. And so it's sort of like a controlled feedback loop that allows for that offset of tension. So that way um, we're getting a representative gravity or offset um, that we would see on, on Mars and we would on Earth. One of the elements that you had no control over is weather. And I, I'm just curious, I mean, given, you know, I understand that there's a lot of um, windstorms and things like that on Mars. You're, I, don't, I don't believe that you're seeing data in real time, are you? No, so we take um, data in uh, as part of our downlink cycle. Mm -hmm. So um, when we uplink a command, uh, it executes, you know, at that moment on Mars, and then we get the downlink because of information um, a couple hours later. So the the weather, we we do have, you know, thermistors and ways of checking the temperature of our electronics of like what we should be seeing during flight. And so that's where how we've been monitoring that. And we do have parameters or an outline of kind of what the environment's going to be and where we are. So, you know, with the exception of like a couple dust devils that spin up, we don't expect high uh, velocity winds that would be able to, you know, disturb us in any way. But there are chances of that, like you said, weather is out of our control. So there are chances of that um, popping up. And uh, we it's really a, a little bit of luck is involved <laughs> in that as well. Absolutely. When you're talking about these many hundreds of millions of miles away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I'm curious, how, how do you decide... How do you go about deciding how long the rotors need to be and how fast they need to rotate? So the rotor design has to be stiff enough uh, for us to be able to spin up fast and 
uh, be able to cut through the air well enough for us to generate lift. And so I would say everything that goes into the rotor design is all about creating a system that allows us to optimize our lift as best as possible. So um, you can have a bunch of different airfoil designs that damp out air so we're not creating vibrations in our system. Um, but the size and the spin-up all have to do with creating that lift element. And, and really, that's, that's kind of the, the simplest answer because, you know, we're cutting, once again, the atmospheric density is so thin. You don't have the air that you do on Earth to work against to help, you know, build up that pressure under your wings so you can fly easier. So being able to spin up faster so you have your contact in the air more rapidly and then being able to increase that surface area that of what you're contacting both help in being able to generate that lift for us to fly. So for the flight last week I think it, I think that you guys were rotating at I think around 2200 reps per minute something. It was 25 2537 rpm. Okay. So what would it have to be so what would it be on earth? Do you, do you know what on Earth gravity, what how many rotations per minute it would be? For like uh, drones or helicopters on Earth, it's around like 500, 500, 600 RPM. Okay. I think the max I've seen here is like a thousand. Okay. But I mean, it, it all depends on like the size and what you're lifting. But yeah, it's, it's, it's much, it's incredibly, it's much faster than anything we see here. Yeah. And one of our parameters in, in testing the vehicle was that we could only spin up to you know our maximum flight um 2500 rpm when we're in a martian atmospheric density we wouldn't spin up that fast um just at like ambient temperature and pressure on earth <laughs> um I, I read in the materials that i was sent that there that ingenuity has a bunch of off-the-shelf components what would that be uh yeah so some of our electronics boards are considered off-the-shelf but I would say there's a caveat to that is that they are retrofitted for our purposes. So even if we have had something that we have bought from a vendor, we usually tweak it and, you know, refine it to fit into the helicopter system. So, uh, yeah, I would consider everything to be customizable in a way. But, um, yeah, we didn't, you know, create everything from scratch at, at JPL. Can, can you explain how the instructions are sent to Ingenuity to let it know how to fly and where to fly? Yeah, so we have um, these commands. Um, so they're basically scripts, and it tells the helicopter to wake up, execute these series of commands. So like for the first flight, it was to spin up, hover, uh, do the flight rotation to the rover, snap a picture, and then touch back down. And all of that is controlled in our software. And so that's part of the uplink process. And that gets executed. So that gets, you know, delivered to our base station, which is our electronics unit on the rover. And then the helicopter, that's the kind of go between between us and the helicopter. So that gets sent to the helicopter. And, you know, when that time, when that time stamp, you know, goes off, the helicopter wakes up, executes the commands and then relays what it did back to our base station on the rover, and then that is sent back to us on Earth. So the, right now, I believe what there are there are five different um, flights that are planned. Is that right? Yes. As as, and it's with di- different disciplines going different distances away and, and, and things like that. So once the five flights are done, are you guys able to reprogram Ingenuity to do any more than those five flights? 
Yes. So uh, we have our, you know, 30 day window of um, doing all of these flights. And if there is more time, um, then maybe they may build upon another flight. Um, I think there is some flexibility in flights four and five. So if there are any changes, then it all comes down to just whatever that command is. So we can still upload or uplink those commands um, and adjust them as necessary. So can, can we talk a little bit about your background and, and you know, where did you grow up and how did you end up at NASA? <laughs> uh, of course. Um, so I am uh, born and raised on the East Coast. Uh, I grew up in Maryland with uh, my sister, who I live with now out here in California, and my lovely parents. Uh, so I, yeah, I grew up in Maryland just doing a bunch of different activities. I was really involved in sports and art and uh, pretty much you name it. I, I wanted to try everything as a kid. So, um, yeah, I went through our, you know, regular public school system, and that was great. And then I went off to college. So um, I originally went to Goucher College, and that was a local a liberal arts school where I wanted to study physics and because I wanted to be able to do physics and still dance at the same time. And so um, after two years there, I realized that I really wanted to do engineering and, you know, get my hands dirty. So I transferred schools and I went to Columbia University in New York City. And so I started as, uh, you know, I completed my bachelor's in science at uh, Columbia in mechanical engineering. And kind of that was, that was it. After, uh, out of my senior year, I moved out to California, got a job at JPL and hit the ground running, just started on a, like as many projects as I could. So I think the first, my intro into JPL was you know, doing the research and getting um, more immersed in the small spacecraft. Uh, element of aerospace. So I started on CubeSat. Uh, my first flight project was RainCube. Sorry, sorry, was, sorry, was what? Your first flight project was what? Uh, it's called RainCube. Okay, what's that? It's a CubeSat or SmallSat that uh, featured this high band um, antenna that is uh, kind of new technology for CubeSats. Uh, so what it did was it, it's an Earth orbiter that picks up rain and precipitation. And that was operational for three years. So it was a very successful mission, and I was happy to be a part of it. It was kind of my yeah, first, first step, my, my, my toe into flight work at, at JPL. And then I, I worked on a, um, and a Tiger team, which is an investigative team that you know, looks into anomalies on, um, on the rover. I think the MSL rover was one of them. And then, uh, then I went on to the helicopter. Uh, so what year did you start at JPL? Uh, I started in the fall of 2016. So the helicopter was already in development when you joined the team? Correct, yeah. yes. Uh, they had already been testing the first engineering model and were developing the second. So I helped test the second one. And then I was there throughout the entire flight build of the, the flight vehicle. So when you were a kid growing up, was working with NASA in one way or the other, any part of a dream that you had? It's interesting. I, I can, maybe I can see that now, but growing up, I, now I can see like the little nuggets that were placed in my childhood that led me to where I am now. Um, so my dad is an aerospace engineer and he works at CL. So that's over on the East coast. 
Um, so, I mean, I would go and visit him bringing a child up day, and that was always a highlight of, you know, my year being in his, in the clean rooms and being around all the hardware is very cool. So uh, that was something that was always, that always stuck to me. And then I, I really actually wanted to be an inventor as a kid. So I like taking things apart in my house and I had like a little notebook of uh, ideas that I would jot down and be like, Oh, this would be so cool. If, you know, you could swim underwater with, this device and so I would you know jot kind of random ideas and uh, and then like in school I would I didn't realize it maybe at the time but I actually looked forward to science fairs and gravitated towards um those types of activities so I did like the nerdy physics camp electively wasn't it wasn't forced on me I actually just wanted to do it and yeah so all of these kind of like little things kind of came together and yeah shaped who I am today Finally, I'm, I'm just curious, like, so what are the next milestones that need to be achieved with Flight on Mars? And uh, do you already know what your next project is going to be? I think this, this program altogether, Ingenuity, opens the doors for a lot of other aerial vehicles to be kind of in the works for uh, future missions, whether it be on Mars or, or on, on other you know, celestial bodies. And so for this, for this particular um, vehicle, I think executing those five flights and just getting as much information out of them as possible is the primary mission because we really do want to, it's kind of like a science experiment. You want to get as much data as possible so that way when you build your next, your, your V2, your next version, you can build it bigger, better, stronger. You can add more things to it. So I think that's going to be the ultimate goal in, in these next flights coming up is really just pushing the boundaries of the vehicle to get that information. For me personally, I am already on another project. So I'm working on this project called Maya. It's an Earth mission project. So it's an Earth orbiter instrument um, that picks up aerosols and pollution and um, is going to be used to, you know, improve human health conditions on Earth, hopefully. And uh, but outside of that, I mean, I'm just drawn to being able to implement new technology in any way that I can. So there are a lot of amazing projects that NASA is looking into that, you know, will expand our reach even more and give us more information. And uh, I just want to be a part of that mission. If you'd like to read more about ingenuity and perseverance, I've included some useful links in the show notes. I've also posted photos and videos on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for The Creationist Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you haven't already, please take a moment to follow us on your favorite podcast platform, and new episodes will be delivered to you as soon as they go live. And if you have any friends that might be interested in some of what we're covering, please let them know that we exist. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrand. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. (laughs) 